0: We're in a series um, uh, in Ephesians, and um, hopefully, if you were here last week, Pastor Dan, uh, I'm sure, did a phenomenal job, did he not? Those of you that were here, he did not. Okay, I will, uh, I will gladfully tell him so. (laughs) Um, No, we got to uh, switch, we thought it'd be a great opportunity to just switch locations, um, I did not say anything because I didn't want anybody to skip out, okay? So, um, but no, uh, it was just a, gr- a great opportunity. I got to spend time in Adrian, catch up with some of the our element people that's still there. Uh, just really co- kind of a reunion in a, in a sense. And then a lot of the Mosaic people I, I, um, I've, I've, I'm acquainted with as well. So just a really refreshing time. And it really, you know what? The biggest thing for me, the, one of the biggest takeaways for me was um, as I spent time there, it enabled me to um, kind of see the bigger picture of what we're doing, uh, and, and again. And, it, and it, was, it was very refreshing and, and very um, celebratory, in a sense, in my heart to say, you know, this is something that we're, that we're accomplishing. This is something that we're doing. We're collab- missionally collaborating here, uh, and we continue to, we're continuing to work on new, new and fresh ideas of, of moving that forward as well. But we're, we're still making a footprint uh, in Adrian. And so that is very, that's very exciting. And so it was just a really exciting time to be there and to share with them the word uh, that we've been in, uh, with them, uh, the word we've been in uh, as well in Ephesians. And so as we get started here this morning, I want to share this, this quick thought with you again that we've been doing uh, each week. And I would ask and invite you to, to do, the, do this uh, thought with me here. Uh, and on the screen, you're going to see this. And, and if you would... I would ask that you would just make it about you. Uh, This is about you, between you and God. This is your choice. You have a choice to come in and to kind of blow through the activities and kind of leave. Or you can come in and be present, and the Holy Spirit will connect with you. I believe God has a message for each and every one of us in here this morning. And that says that, and to open ourselves up, we invite God in to say, God, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to say to me uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning? So I pray that that would be your heart's request as we spend a few moments uh, looking in Ephesians. And today, we're going to take a look at what we call a marked life, okay? And in that, Paul talks about, you know, as we have received this great salvation, this great work that Christ has done, that he, that he set up in the first few chapters, we, we, we bear this mark. We have this marked life. We're, we're, we're his children. We're his, we're his uh, you know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're his children. And with that, we have this marked life. Now, um... Uh, if, uh, what I really appreciated last week when we talked about, uh, what we talked about last week is, and, and I think Dan pr- uh, presented it to you as well, uh, when you started reading like that last part of chapter three with Paul, that he, he, he goes into it, he makes, he kind of, it's kind of like us. It's like, it's exactly like us. Anything that we're passionate about, it will come out. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be negative. It can be positive. If you're passionate about something, it's going to come out and people will know it. Okay. It does again, no matter what it is, you could be. Uh, you know, on a soapbox about something negative or something extremely positive. But it will come out. All you have to do is spend a few moments talking with someone and you will have a clear indication of what they're passionate about. Paul starts in talking in, in that passage that we looked at last week. He ventures into it, wades into maybe a part of a sentence and then he just goes off. And, it, and you can tell that he's just full of passion, man. He's communicating things that he is just absolutely 100% not only just sold out on, but he is just passionately excited about what this message that, that God has entrusted him with. This mystery that God has allowed him to, to share uh, with, with other individuals. And so today, we're going to take a look a little bit further into that. So if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. Okay, So Ephesians chapter 4, uh, starting with uh, verse 1. We're going to read the first uh, 16 verses here of that chapter. And I'm going to read from the Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible. And it reads very much uh, the same as, the, as an ESV or an NIV. But listen to the words uh, of Paul when he says this. Therefore I, the prisoner uh, in the Lord. By the way, and I'm sure Dan shared this with you too. Very interesting, Paul's perspective on the whole thing. Paul never looked at himself as like this fugitive or this uh, prisoner of Rome or, you know, I'm in captivity for Nero or whoever it was, whatever it was, Paul never looked at that negative side. He always focused on the positive side and not that he was just some dreamer, somebody that lived in the sky. It wasn't that way at all. He was genuinely excited about it and that's how he saw himself. He saw himself as a prisoner of Christ. He saw himself as a prisoner in the Lord and he says it again, uh, the, I, the prisoner in the Lord urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called uh, to one body at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Verse 7, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with the cleverness uh, and the techniques of deceit. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way in him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. I just want to spend a few moments just kind of talking about this, because, uh, or talking about this, and then we're going to spend a few moments uh, remembering what Christ has done for us, uh, especially in our text, where he uh, ascended and or descended and ascended um, but 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 celebrating this great salvation but I want us to under- I want us to just think a minute uh, here for uh, just a couple seconds about paul Paul begins to take a shift here okay he before this in this letter he 's remembering he's rem- he 's reflecting he 's remembering the alienation that once was. Uh, and now the present acceptance in Christ. In the first couple chapters, in the first three chapters, Paul's saying, this is the way it used to be. We were all alienated. We were separated. There was a chasm. Uh, we we, We were all in the same boat, and that was not a good boat, right? It was a sinking boat. But we were all the same way. And so he reflects on that. For the first three chapters, he reminds us of God's goodness in saying that God did not leave us in that state. God did not just forget about us. God didn't just say, "Hey, sorry about your luck," but instead, God provided means. He provided this incredible sense of grace and mercy through the marvelous salvation that is ours that He extends it, extends it to. And now, Paul takes this shift with all force possible, if you will, and he asks readers, or urges readers, or leads readers uh, of this letter um, into this, into and implores them to live this life worthy of that calling. You understand? Paul says this is the way we were. He spent three chapters showing this incredible, the incredible gift of salvation and what Christ did on the cross. The, the first three chapters of, of this, 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 amazing, uh, this amazing ministry, this amazing thing that, that God has done, and now he says because of that, because of that, if you understand the weight of that, if you've experienced that, if you've encountered that, if you've embraced that, if you have received this this marvelous salvation, because of that, he implores them to live a life that's worthy of that calling. Does that make sense? I mean, he, he leads us into that. In fact, what he's saying really is this. Hey, guys, there's application to this now. Because of what God has done for you, this incredible act of God, He challenges the readers to live out their faith. To live it out. Because so often Christianity is presented as something that doesn't require one thing from us. Christianity, our walk. We get hung up and we start debating salvation and all those things and saying, well, there's nothing nothing more we have to do. Yes, that's true. But in response of this incredible gift of salvation, Paul's saying, "Live a life that's worthy of that. Live a life that's that, that's, that's um, that, that that is um, you know worthy and, and a calling that that um, responds to this great gift of salvation." And he suggests something about it. He says, you know, in one translation it says walk. Another one it says live. This live, this walk. There's there's something about it. There's something that suggests that it's controlled, that it's enduring, that it's directed, that it's not some frantic, you know, well, I'll just get to it or, you know, I'll just think about it or whatever. No, that's not what it is at all. Paul's saying live a life. Walk this life. Respond to this great salvation that God has just freely given you. Because he has freely given this to you, respond to it in such a way that is worthy of that, if possible. The problem is, as one person has said, we have this million dollar salvation and we give it a five cent response often. And Paul's saying that's not the way it is. We, you know, we should be overcome by this incredible gift of, of, of his grace, uh, his, his gift of grace um, and mercy. And so, as we look at this, uh, verses 1 and 2 is where we, where we see that and where we pick up on that. And verses 1 and 2 says this, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling. And, he, and he's going to kind of spell it out for us, okay? And, and I want us to take a few moments because when we, especially today, when we celebrate and we think about the freedoms that we have as Americans, those freedoms sometimes can become our Achilles heel. Okay? And I I just want to walk through those with you for a few moments. But here Paul, like, really kind of lays them out for us, okay? And so, if you would just kind of take a look here, it says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with, what? Humility, and gentleness, and patience, and accepting one another in love. Who in here thinks we do an awesome job as Americans? And I'm not, I'm not putting down America. Don't go that direction with me. I'm saying humility and gentleness, patience, accepting one another in love. I want to just share a couple of things with you real quick. Number one, he's talking about relational ethics. And he's saying... These are the things, this is the response to a great salvation. These are the things that, that, that we embrace. These are the things that characterize us. These are the things that should, should, when someone looks at us, they see them oozing from us because this is what it means to embrace God's salvation and become one of His. One of, one of his. And so for the next few months, let's take a look at that. Number one, humility. Humility simply means, and uh, the way we're going to look at it, is this sense of self-understanding versus self-centeredness, Okay? This sense of self-understanding versus self-centeredness, okay? And that means we renounce self-centeredness. When we begin to understand who we are, truly who we are, when we begin to stop, for the, there, there's, this, there's this spot, I think, in our lives that if we can just kind of stand and be quiet and reflect and take a look at who we are, sometimes we don't see some good things about us. We begin to have a little bit of better understanding of ourselves, And what happens is if we're truly honest with ourselves and we realize that there's components of ourself that is just pure selfish. There's components of ourself because what happens is we kind of go back to Genesis 3 is what happens. We go back to the garden and we, we're kind of there in the garden as well and it becomes about us. You know? and, and that's what can happen even in our, in our life today where it becomes, our world becomes about us. What is it that I can get? You know, what is it that's going to be best for me? And we lose this sense of humility or this sense of, you know, um, I guess, humility. And we, we embark on this, this, this path to self-centeredness where we say, it's all about me. A proper understanding of, self, of, of self-understanding is, is the most crucial ingredient for life. If we can truly see who we are, because, because honestly, we, without God, we have no meaning. And if we replace ourselves with God, and we say, well, this life is about me, and that's the culture that we live in. That is the society we live in. We saw it years ago when we started down this path of eradicating absolute truths. We started down this path when we, when we started eradicating, you know, that there is a higher being. Because if there's a higher being, that means that you and I report to a higher being, right? If I could say it crudely, you know? And so, if there's a higher being, if there's someone higher than me, then that means that, that someone's higher than me pretty much sets the tone, pretty much sets the standard. So if I want to make everything copacetic for what I do in life, I need to get rid of the standard, correct? Let me eradicate the standard, and then it becomes about how I interpret things, how I think things should be run. Because there's no one else that's telling me, you know, uh, this, I'm in it for myself. And what happens is, without God, we have absolutely no meaning in life. We have no anchor. We have no north point. We have nothing. And it becomes so subjective. And when that happens, it becomes very much about ourselves. Our relationships become about us. What can I get out of those? Our, our, whatever it is, whatever the things that we find ourselves in can become completely about us. And that is the antithesis of what humility really is. Humility is this sense where we renounce. Self-centeredness, where we say, "You know what? This isn't all about me. My life isn't the, the, what I'm experiencing here. My life isn't all about me." And we begin to, um, you know, we begin to to give that up. This self-importance, we give it up, uh, and we turn in our Christian faith. We have this assault on this self-seeking uh, thing that can run can run rampant through us. So the first one's humility. Does that make sense? The first one's humility. Paul's saying, if you want to live your life worthy of the calling, you need to crucify yourself. Kind of the same thing that Jesus taught us when he said you need to lose yourself or to find yourself, right? You need to lose your life to find your life. But it's a sense of humility that says, you know what? This world doesn't revolve around me. The second one is gentleness that he talks about. And in order to have gentleness, we must renounce harshness and violence rather than harshness or this lack of caring and receptivity and violence towards others and, and people in our world, we, pra- we should practice gentleness, which means, you know, our healthy relationships become so much more healthy when we're, when we're, again, gentle. We can't exist, the two can't exist together when we pose a threat or a force. But healthy relationships is saying, I'm going to be gentle in this. But again, it comes back up, and I think it's built on humility, which says, it's not all about me. I'm in this with you. I'm in this relationship together. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We're going to navigate through this. Christians sometimes will present themselves as as so brittle and hostile that no one wants to be around them. We'll say, well, we're right, but we present it in such a way that it just becomes repulsive uh, to, to, to people. But gentleness conveys this sensitivity that says, you know what? I don't have a desire to harm you. I believe in what I believe in, and we value the other person, and we become gentle, and we become a person that can nurture uh, th- th- this relationship. And that's what happens. Gentleness nurtures people. They, it, it, gentleness respects them and it allows them to drop their defenses and have this, this more objective uh, approach to uh, the relationship. The next one's patience. I don't know about you, but this is the one I just don't like, right? Patience. How do we get patience? Well, you pray for patience and you're put in the middle of it so that you can learn how to deal with patience, right? And for some of us, we still don't have patience because I don't want to be put in the middle of it to learn patience, to be honest with you. But patience. We renounce the tyranny of our own agendas. Where we come into this and we, we realize again that there's more to life than just us and our agendas and what we believe is the best approach, or whatever it may be, and our society has taught us the opposite of that. Our society has taught us that you you have to want it now, right? We live in this sense. I think we were just talking about this not too long ago with, with someone that we live in this sense of self gratification, this sense of instant gratification. I think it was Jeff. We were having lunch and we were talking about that when we were growing up. Uh, I find myself getting old when we have those conversations. Well. When I was in high school, this is the way it was, and these younger kids, right? But it's that sense of, I remember back, you know, we grew up, I grew up in the 80s, and I remember going to college, and I distinctly remember how many credit card applications you could get as a student, how many credit cards you could get as a student with absolutely no income at all. And you would see individuals just falling by the wayside, really setting their life up in a, on a bad, bad trajectory because it was so easy to just fill one out and they would give you like, what, two or $3,000. And it's like, hey, this is awesome. And so what you saw other people, what took them years, and we all know this, what took someone else years to acquire, like our parents, who, you know, like my parents didn't really. I mean, they had credit, but it wasn't really that, it wasn't like what it was then or even today, but what it took them for years to get, I could acquire in like a heartbeat. I'll just fill this out and then I'm, I can get whatever I want. And it's just crazy. Our society teaches that. Our society teaches us the antithesis of patience. Get it now. You deserve it. It's, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't need to wait. But patience is key. Paul says it is absolute key in, in, in responding and living a life that is, that is uh, worthy to this, this incredible gift of salvation. And then the last one he mentions is this. Tolerant love. In order to have tolerant love, we must renounce our rights. And there's times where we focus on our rights, but rights, even though they may be important, can be another form of damaging self-centeredness if we're not careful. And I'm not saying that if we don't have rights, I'm not saying we have to strip away our rights. All I'm saying is, how do we present our rights? There's times where we can say, well, it's my right, and I can just tread on any, anybody. Does that make it right? Paul's saying that's not the way... A Christian, a, a, someone that's living the calling that's worthy of this calling lives their lives. There's times where you set your rights to the side for the sake of others. We think about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, where he knew who he was, but yet he set aside his what? His heavenly rights to become human. He set aside his, some of his heavenly rights to become human to be able to, to, uh, to uh, inaugurate or implement this, this great plan of salvation and so we see in this this tolerant love that there's a choice to be made Uh, you know do we care enough about other people to say you know what you know i don't have to just totally roll over on my rights but there's a way that i can present myself that i can engage with other people in healthy relationships now some would say okay we take these Okay, we take all these. We take this humility. We take this gentleness and patience. We take this tolerance to love. And if we take it too far, isn't this a little extreme? Isn't this a bit passive? If we don't, you know, if we're not very careful, you know, this won't some, if we don't hit this head on, won't someone take advantage of us? Guys, on the contrary, when we read about the life that Jesus calls us to, it is, about, it is a choice of willfully submitting to Him. Probably and perhaps the biggest issue is, again, we get back to this self. We get locked into this self. We believe it's us that has to protect that. We believe it's us that has to, you know, guard that with everything we've got. When we begin to live a life that's, tr- that's, that's really enmeshed in this great plan of salvation, we make the choice where we submit to Christ, where we trust Him with, our, with every aspect of our being. Where we, where we we choose to love others now that doesn't again that doesn 't mean we have to go to the extreme and be completely walked on that 's not the point of this message, but let 's be honest, we live in a world that it 's the antithesis of being humble and gentle and patient and tolerate every uh, others with love and when we refuse to exalt ourselves um, or, or the ref, or i should say the, re, the, the refusal to exalt self does not lead into this incompetence or passivity. Rather, it means a person is very strong. It takes a very strong person in their faith to stay humble and to stay patient and gentle with other individuals. What happens when this clicks in? There is incredible unity that happens within the body. Then we talk about unity. Paul says in verses 3 through 6, he says this, diligently keeping the unity of the spirit with the peace that binds us, that binds us, there is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called the one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through uh, above all, and in all. If Christ has created this peace and He's given us this unity, then unity has to be part of our self-understanding. We as followers of Christ, if that's if Christ has created that and He has given us that. In fact, that was even one of his major prayers right before he went to the cross. Then unity has to be part of our self-understanding, and meaning that we are one with other people in Christ whether we like it or not. When we have other brothers and sisters that are in Christ. Whether we like it or not, that's it in itself. We cannot have Christ to ourselves. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we cannot be mature Christians by ourselves as we cannot give ourselves everything we need for a life of faith. It is designed, this whole thing is designed for unity. This whole thing is designed as communal living. This whole, this whole thing is designed to live in and with each other. Christ could, absolutely Christ could supply all of our needs absolutely directly. If there was an X sitting here on the carpet, and I've shared this with you before, if we put an X on the carpet, Christ has the power to just literally exponentially just dump on you everything that you need, and you'd be good for life. But that's not how he chooses to work, is it? Just like we talked about patience. How do we develop patience? We get in the middle of something that requires patience. And if you're like me, and I hate to say this, I'm finding myself in that test over and over and over again, because for some reason I can't grab a hold of it. And that's what Jesus does for us, I believe, is he continues to put us there to enable us to grow. And at times that's hard, but he does it through other ways. He could just literally dump patience on me. He could literally just snap his... I mean, he could do anything he wants to do. He could take me and make me put to where I would never ever deal, have to deal with impatience or not being gentle or not being humble or what. Christ could do that in a heartbeat for us, but he chooses to do it in a way that enables us to grow in, in a way, with other individuals. And let me just be clear. When we talk about unity, that does not mean sameness, okay? Unity doesn't mean sameness. In fact, unity is achieved through diversity. A few weeks ago, we talked about the uniquely unified church. That's like a dichotomy. The uniquely, uh, the uniquely unified church, right? Because unique means that, that, is the, the, that there is nothing else like that. And unified means we're coming together. So unity doesn't mean sameness. And I think sometimes we get hung up on that. We think that we all have to agree upon the same exact thing like preferences. And we focus in so much on that that we miss the bigger concept. And that is this. We have a common identity in Jesus Christ. We're still going to be different. We're still going to look at things different. That's the way we were created. And we're going to see here in just a few moments how that even comes more into effect. But we share in the experiences of Christ. We share in our values. We share in this mutual respect uh, to be given, you know, uh, more attention than our differences. Differences that in most cases are much cultural as they are theological. Unity at any cost is not what we're talking about. On the other hand, the emphasis means that you, that the unity is not the goal, but it's on Christ himself. Unity is not the It's not just to be unified. I mean, then if we're talking about that, yes, okay, then we all have to be the same. But it's Christ is we. We unity is in Christ, and that's the unity that comes from a shared faith and a shared knowledge of Christ. Now, there are times again. Let me just say this: there are times again that, that we experience uh, diversity. I get that. There are times where where we say, "Aren't aren't diversions or aren't divisions necessary at times?" And I've heard this before, especially within church when certain factions of people will break off and start another church and some will say well that's just great because they can minister to other people that's you're right that can happen i'm not so sure the intent of dividing was correct right and a lot of times i think what happens is we kind of sugarcoat it we say well diversity is great you know they can reach other people well how did it happen was it intentional was it with thought was it with prayer was it do we come together to say, you know what? This is the best way of exploring something. Let's go over here. You, why, don't, why don't we start something over here that will reach something, someone completely different? I agree with that 100%. There's a lot of times where we just break koinonia because we're not really getting what we want. And I don't believe that's unity in the right way. I don't believe that's what Paul's teaching about. I don't believe that's unity in Christ. There's a difference, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, about uh, healthy or- orthodoxy, healthy or- and orthopraxy. Uh, but healthy orthodoxy, look, in, uh, look, at chap- look at verses 7 through 10. It says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. But what does the ascendant mean except that he descended to lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And the question becomes, is theology enough? And it seems to indicate here, you know, when we look at these seven things, these seven things literally will shape our Christology. It will shape how we go about our lives, our worldview, or should. And that's why I believe Paul is teaching us this. The emphasis in this is the foundation for unity should determine the interests and shape of our theology. Okay? Now, here in just a minute, we, when we look at this, here in just a minute, we will look at orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is how we go about doing something. The practical ways. And when we look just completely at orthopraxy, and we allow that to dictate our theology, we're backwards. We're absolutely 100% backwards. That's not what drives. That's not what drives how we do things. A proper theology always drives how we do things. We focus on the gospel and what God has accomplished in Christ. We focus on the gospel. We focus on when, it t- when we look at humility, it's first in doing theology. And a lot of times we mix that up. We kind of flip over to orthopraxy and say, "Well, this is how you do something," and it's not really entrenched in a good theology. And when that happens, then we start promoting customs. Then we start pr- promoting preferences. Then we start, pr- uh, we start promoting uh, traditions and all kinds of things that may not be wrong, but they're not rooted in proper theology at times. Does that make sense? We have to have a proper orthodoxy before we go to orthopraxy. Now, hopefully, you're, I, I'm not losing you on this, but if we don't know why we do what we do, it's going to be off. And we're going to practice it. I just had a conversation last week after the service uh, at One Mosaic uh, with an individual and we were catching up and he was saying how uh, this 50, in her 50s, this lady in their office just passed away. Uh, they, they She went in for a checkup and they found she was like full of cancer or something and they were ready to go on vacation. Okay? They're ready to go on vacation so uh, the doctor just says, go ahead, go go to Myrtle Beach, go on vacation and when you come back, we'll, we'll, we'll put a, something in place. Just you just need to get away; she never made it home. They went down, she made it through half the week. she came back, and she didn 't even make it back to michigan and so my friend went to the to the funeral service, and he you know it was in another kind of another faith, and this is what he got kind of hung up on he said man i don 't even know if she had a if she really had a faith and, and, and he 's saying i 'm not judging her He said, but we never even really talked about it and to him, what happened was The orthodoxy is kind of pushing the orthopraxy because it's so easy for us to get caught up in we go to church, we do this, we do that. We get into customs, we get into culture, we get into traditions, we get into all those things. But at the end of the day, when we pass from this life to the next, is our customs, are they really rooted in theology, proper theology? Paul's laying it out there saying, this is what it's rooted in. One faith, one baptism, one salvation. I mean, he's... He's going down the path. Are we we rooted in that? Our practice, our customs rooted in that? Healthy orthopraxy. Verses 11 through 13, he says this. He he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints and the work of the ministry. To do what? To build up the body of Christ. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's the work of the church. And if we're not careful, if our traditions or customs and things like that get off, it affects exactly what Paul's saying needs to happen, you know, the ministry within a church. And what can happen is it's that difference between eisegesis and exegesis. Exegesis is when you come to the Scriptures and you read the Scriptures and you extract out of the Scriptures the truth. When you read a verse, you go into it with an open mind and you look at it and you spend time studying it, you look at the context, you you, you really just spend some time with it and from that you extract the truth of what the Scripture is teaching you. Eisegesis is when we go into Scripture with a thought. And that thought could be completely off, but we're looking for the Scripture to prove what we think is true. Does that make sense? And what can happen is our doctrine, our theology, can be completely off because we're not even exegeting the Scripture properly. We're looking into it, we want to back something that we feel. We want to back something that we think is, is, is right. We want to we do something. We want to prove something maybe within ourselves where something's off within ourselves and we want to feel better about something so we will look into Scripture and we will try to extract out of Scripture something that may not be there whatsoever. And that is absolutely the, uh, the wrong approach to go to it because, it, it for, it, 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 again, it goes back to this unhealthy practice of 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 what of our faith. Everyone and when we look at this, Paul's saying this is the work of the church. How do we extract that? How do we study that? Paul says everyone is called to the same task. Even though responsibilities may vary. Paul says every single one of us, anybody that has received the free gift of grace and salvation, is called to the same exact task. Now he's saying even though responsibilities may vary, everyone's not going to play a guitar. Everyone's not going to play the keyboards. Everyone's not going to sing. Everyone's not going to to, to, to to preach. Everyone's not going to come up and grab a mic and try to teach something. Everyone's not going to teach a Sunday school or whatever, what, you know, a class, a small group, or whatever it is. But the beauty of all this, Paul's saying, God has, and now you can see where it all comes together in uniting. If we come at, to, at this and we live in this with a healthy orthodoxy, uh, in a healthy, healthy doctrine issue or a doctrinal approach to this, we begin to realize that we are all different, but we are all united in one thing, and that is in Jesus Christ. In sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel, enabling people to grow and to become who God has truly created them to be. Our responsibilities may look a little bit different. The problem is, we go to uh, sometimes we say, "Well, this is what I really want to do," so we go and we try to make ourselves into something that we're not that's when things get off. But when we look at this and say, you know what, we are all different. God has given us all a gift. God has given us, every single one of us, at least one gift. And and, and as we come together and unify ourselves together, it unites the church, and the church becomes effective uh, within the community, it becomes effective within its surrounding areas in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where the church comes, and we do all this and we do it in the, in the truth and love. And so what happens is we see this beautiful work of the gospel taking place. In verses 14 and 16, it says, Then we will no longer be little children. Okay? And, and it says, Tossed by the waves, blown around. James talks about the same thing. When you ask for wisdom, you've got to believe. Otherwise, you're going to be blown around, tossed around. But you've got to believe. The gospel at work says this. We're united, even though we're different. We celebrate our uniqueness, but we're united in Jesus Christ. My responsibilities may vary. Your responsibilities may vary. But we come together and we understand why we do what we do. We have a proper understanding. And so what happens? We see this gospel at work, and we begin to live this truth out in love because it's not some abstract exercise when we begin to to really embrace this and live our calling out and live in the way Paul's suggesting, or not just suggesting, but teaching, we live the truth out in love and we realize this isn't some abstract exercise, but we mean that we embrace people in unwavering commitments to the truth. And we speak the truth in love, even if we confront, even if we have to, even if we spend time with other individuals talking about something that can be painful or something that can be sensitive, we always do it in love. And we do it out of concern, or, or we do it out of love for the other person, and we always seek to avoid out of concern for our own security. It goes back to that humility and gentleness and patience. And the church begins to function the way Paul says it's going to function being unified. Right now, I just want to take a minute, and I want to celebrate. I want to remember. I want us to remember, but I want us to take a few moments and focus on why we do what we do. Again, if we don't understand that, it just doesn't make, nothing makes sense. It becomes off. It becomes very subjective. Why we do what we do. We come together. We're unified in Christ. Christ has unified us. We are one. We live this out. We live our lives in a way that is worthy of the calling, and it demonstrates um, it demonstrates the, the just the, the powerfulness of who God truly is. So this morning, what I want to do, if the worship team will come back up, we're gonna lead us. We're gonna, they're gonna lead us into a song, and we're gonna as the song's playing, as they're leading us into a song. Um, I want you guys to to come and and um, come forward and take an element or take your elements. And then once you get them, you, once you get them uh, if you would go back to your seat, please hold them. Don't take them. Uh, we're going to do it together and dismiss as a family, okay? But as we do that, I want us to just engage and think about why we do what we do. Why you do what you do. And, and, and thinking about living your life in this worthy sense, or the, worthy, the worthiness of this great salvation that God has given us so if you will would you please stand let me lead us into a word of prayer and then I, please come and receive your elements Father I just give you great thanks that the work that you have done this incredible work that you've done that it's, that it's so powerful that it's so much greater than us I pray that we wouldn't get so focused in on who we are but we would get focused in on who we are through you in you And I pray, Jesus, that we would remember that. I pray that we would remember this incredible sacrifice that you demonstrated on the cross for us. And I pray that you would give us the power, the courage, the zeal, the stamina, the everything that we need to live this life out. May we live in a humble, contrite, surrendered state before you. And live a life that's worthy of this calling, of this great salvation that you have so richly blessed us with, with no strings attached or anything. May we respond in the love that Paul has so eloquently penned out for us here this morning. And it's in your name we pray.